So Advent is the traditional phrase we use for Christmas because it's meaning the, the, the waiting or the coming of Christ. And so we are still in Advent, actually, because now we're waiting Christ to return again. At Christmas, we celebrate um, Christ entering into this world in which he created. And I'm going to, while next Sunday is officially the start of Advent, I know everybody, at least in America, has, as soon as Halloween was over, Christmas stuff came out. It's like the, the holiday of Thanksgiving doesn't even exist anymore. I like Thanksgiving. I like the weather at Thanksgiving. I like that it's about to be hunting time so I can go shoot stuff around Thanksgiving. And I like getting together as family at Thanksgiving. I like the holiday, but we just pass right through it. So this is not the official start of Advent, but that's okay. I am because I don't have as many preaching opportunities during Advent. We do a couple of special services where we try and sing more a bit because we love these carols at Christmas and uh, be reminded of some of these scriptures and things like that. So I wanted to start this morning, and I'm using a lyric from a very familiar song to talk about the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. So as you can see, we're not doing the whole thing verse 1 through 25, but we'll end on the birth of Jesus fitting for our Christmas time. But this this song, I remember preaching at a, there was a service where, where Jess and I grew up in Reamstown Park at the War Memorial. It was around Christmas time, but I think it also had to do with something military family related, because I kind of remember the family of the people who organized it, their son was in uh, the armed services. I don't remember. I think he was army. I can't remember, but they wanted to do this service around Christmas time. They asked if I would speak at it. And I said, yes. And I used this song, Oh Holy Night, to kind of talk about what Christmas means and what it's all about. And so I'm, I'm picking up off that again, different message, but this phrase in this song since I shared that, and I don't remember what year it was, 2010, 11, something, I can't remember, um, that I shared it. Since that time, this phrase and this song, this line has just stuck with me because it really, for me, captures what is happening at Christmas and the power that Christmas has over us, especially within the United States of America, but even when I was in Japan, we were talking about Christmas. I was doing conversational English with a Japanese mom, and we were talking about Christmas. And they celebrate Christmas. It's a huge holiday in Japan, except there's like 0.02% Christians in Japan. And I'm like, okay, what is it that we're... So I asked her, what, what is Christmas all about in Japan? Because, and had the opportunity to, she's not a Christian, explain to her what Christmas is all about in America and why we celebrate it and the fact that Christmas is a holiday that exists because of Jesus. So why do you guys celebrate it? And I found out I knew Hallmark was evil um, because <laughs> it's not really evil. But Christmas in Japan is all about romance. So if you watch the Hallmark Channel at Christmas, then my girls have already been doing this. Every stinking movie is about some kind of romance at Christmas. 
And apparently in Japan, that's what they're doing. It's Christmas is a romantic holiday. You do things like a Hallmark movie. That's why I know Hallmark is bad. I, so I haven't outlawed it yet in our house. I, I might get kicked out if I try to do that. Uh, but that's what she said Christmas means. So I said, well, in the United States, here's what Christmas means. As much as we try and, you know, still there's this level of, obviously, there's still this level of Christianity connected to Christmas. That's why, like, on Christmas Eve, the churches all over the United States of America are packed with people. Because there's still a level of, well, we should go to church because that's what Christmas is supposed to be about. And I think it's so powerful because of this line that is, I want to bring it out here in Luke's gospel as well. But you've heard this. We don't sing this song as a congregation. None of us can really hit the soprano high note. I do sing this song, but you don't want to hear me sing it hitting that soprano high note. I did do some Christmas karaoke this past weekend. Uh, and it didn't sound good. D Jess does have a recording of it, so I'm sure I'll be blackmailed at some point. The song that you probably have all heard is Oh Holy Night. You'll hear it on Christmas Eve from Judy Devlin. We sing it just about every year. And it goes, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. And so we're celebrating Christmas. But this, this line is what captured me and I think really captures what happens at Christmas. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Now, we don't use the word pining anymore, but it's just kind of like this. We look around, you open the, well, nobody has a newspaper anymore. You look at your phone and you're scrolling through the articles. You're watching TV. You see the news go on. There's just this heaviness, it seems like, to life. And maybe even now so much more so than others, we've got wars in Ukraine, we've got wars in Israel, we've, it just, it seems heavy. And that's this long lay the world in sin and error, pining for something else. There's got to be something more. And, and I've been sharing the last number of months, and even just sharing statistics and stuff, I, there's a heaviness in the United States of America as well. There's this level of depression and anxiety, which actually increases in many people's lives at Christmas. There's this level of loneliness. There's this, this heaviness to life. And I think that's what that line is capturing. It just feels heavy, longing, pining for something else. There's got to be something different. There's lots of people who are struggling with meaninglessness and purposelessness. I think that is the, the thing that ails us is so many, specifically young men, have no purpose and meaning because all we're doing is looking inside ourselves and how we feel about things. And we'll see Luke is pointing us outward and say, your life has a bigger purpose, but it's not all about you. But God can do something amazing through you. That's what I think that line is capturing, this sin and error pining. Till he appeared. Christmas morning, we celebrate the fact that God has entered in to human existence, to the earth he created, till he appeared. And for the first time, we really got a sense, a taste of how much you and I are worth, how much God's love extends to all of humanity. Till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth. God did something amazing at Christmas. 
and that heaviness that we all felt changes. There's this thrill of hope. The weariness, the heaviness is exchanged for praise and rejoicing. There's, there's a joy that can't be described because that heaviness has been released. It says, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Something is different about life, about actually the whole created universe. On that morning, God changed everything. He brought the whole story of redemption to its climactic point. This is the climax in the movie. We're building to this moment, and this moment is Christmas because it begins the story of when God came to earth. And that story was all about the worth of you and I and all the people that he has created. Luke is bringing that out in the first two chapters as he begins to tell this story of that day when our souls, when the earth felt its worth. When God said back in Genesis, it is good. And we hear that line over and over, it is good, it is good. But we look out in our world and we say, no, it is broken. It is broken. And on that Christmas morning, God said, no, it is good. And I'm going to show you how. And we celebrate the birth of God in flesh, coming to live and dwell among us. Luke is capturing that, and he's doing something very important in in chapter 1. He's rooting this whole story in history. It's beyond just the people we're going to be introduced to. It started before they got on the scene. It's going to continue after they are off the scene. There's more going on here than just the existence of the couple we're going to be introduced to of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He roots it in history. He says in verse 1, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So now he's writing about the fact that Jesus has come. He's he's experienced this. Others have experienced this. So Luke is not the first gospel that was written. He's actually pulling from other sources. And he is now taking up the opportunity to, to talk about it, to write about it. About what has been witnessed, what has been fulfilled, everything that has happened from when God broke into human history. And he says... In verse 2, he's actually writing this to a friend of his. Just as they were handed down to us, so he's talking about other sources, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants to the word. He's talking about people that actually experienced and witnessed the things that were fulfilled among us. Now he's going to write about it. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So he's actually writing this to this guy, but it's actually being written to all of us. And he's doing it so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I'm doing this so that you can know that this is true. Truth is not based upon our own experience. This is why it's a problem that history is removed from education. This is why I think history is the most important subject that you can learn in school. As boring as many of you think it is, it is important to know this because it didn't begin the day we were born. 
A lot has happened before you came. And until Jesus comes back, a lot might happen when you're gone. Luke is rooting this in something that we can put our stakes in, that, that solid ground that we're looking for. He, he's rooting it in history, and he does it this way. In verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, so he's giving us a location. He's giving us a time period that this is all taking place. This isn't myth. It's not legend. It's not folklore. This is actual human history. And that's important for us to know. And you'll see why that's important in a minute. He's introducing us to two people, Zechariah. And Zechariah belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. So he's somebody that has a specific job. That means you can trace his lineage back through the priesthood and all that kind of stuff. And he's married to a lady, Elizabeth, who is a descendant of Aaron. And we can trace all the way that back in through the Old Testament. So he's introducing us to two real human beings. These aren't just legendary people. And he's basing all of what he's doing, he's rooting it in history. And here's why that's important, because it gives life a greater significance than just your personal story. We base everything now off of ourselves. We look inwardly. I, I used that as an example the other week, and lots of counseling and therapy tries to figure you out. And if you can just figure you out, then you're going to be okay, except... The more we look inside of ourselves, the worse it usually gets. We got to point in a different direction. We got to look, look elsewhere. And as we do that, we find that there is maybe greater significance to our life than just my own existence. And I think the story at Christmas that captures that the best, the only Christmas movie you ever really need to watch, is... <laughs> Someone got the right answer. No, it's not Home Alone. It's not Christmas with the Cranks. It's not all that. It's a Wonderful Life. Have you all seen It's a Wonderful Life? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you haven't seen it so I can shame you. No, just kidding. I'm not going to shame you. It is an amazing movie because it really captures, to me, the profound impact when we look at our lives, not about ourselves, about other people, we see how much this one life, George Bailey, who nobody ever heard of, he's in some podunk town that has no, you know, significance whatsoever, in some, you know, nowhere business, and it's just one simple life that has such a profound impact on other people. And I think Really, what we're going to see is two people's lives, Zachariah and Elizabeth, that God gives greater significance as they join in the story, the history that he's writing, Re redemption history. And I think part of our problem, at least in American culture, is we're just trying to look inside. If we can figure out what's wrong with us, then maybe I'll feel better. I won't be as depressed. I won't struggle as much with feeling lonely. I won't struggle as much with having no meaning or purpose. But really, we're pointing in the wrong direction. We've got to point somewhere else. And we've kind of lost that. Even within our counseling and therapy, 
we're losing this sense of outer meaning that gives greater significance to our our very existence. And that's what happened to George Bailey. It wasn't just about your life. You thought it was you and you wanted to go all these different places. You were acting actually pretty selfishly. But you saw how much your life actually meant to all these other people. And I think when we join in God's story, it does give us this profound significance to what he is doing because it's bigger than just ourselves or wealth or power or fame or whatever. And we'll see that in this story about Zachariah and Elizabeth, just two regular people like you and me. And both of them, he says in verse six, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. They weren't sinless people. What Luke is trying to capture is these two people really tried to live live out that first commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That was back in Deuteronomy. These two people tried to live that out. In their interactions, in their as a priest, within their families, within their community. That's what Luke is describing there. Now, verse 7 sets up the rest of the story and why it's a profound story of what God's doing and how God, through this Christmas story, is really showing us our worth. And what he loves to do also, this is because God is, he is immense. You can't capture all of who God is, but he is also close. He is willing to actually personally deal with people. And it's not just this collective, all the humanity knows their worth at Christmas. It actually gets drilled down to these two people know their worth at Christmas. And he can do that for every individual. Because the story starts out great. Oh man, these people love the Lord their God and they're trying to live for him. But in verse 7, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So that last line ought to make us think of another couple who were both very old, wanted to have a kid, but didn't have a kid. And they were like, okay, God, I thought you were going to do something with us and through our family. We've been praying about having a child. We're childless. Are you even listening or hearing us? Where might we have heard that before? If I go back to Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a different couple, Abram and Sarai, who later became Abraham and Sarah. They too were in the same situation. It seems like Luke is bringing something from the history and putting together something new that God is doing, and he's tying it all together, and he's doing it again, surprise, surprise, through these two no-name people, a guy that was in the line of Abijah as priest and a lady that came from Aaron as as a descendant. That, but they were childless, no, that's sad. If, you know, you were trying to have a child, you wanted a child, that's sad. But there's way more going on here culturally that actually would have, Zachariah and Elizabeth would have felt shame. That they, in Jesus's day, if you remember when Jesus was walking around and he walks up to a person that was blind or lame, I can't remember which, and Jesus was asked the question, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Because in this culture, sin was connected with these kinds of things. So 
apparently Zachariah and Elizabeth weren't as righteous in following God as much as they thought they were because they must have sinned in some way that they don't have a child. So there's a lot more going on here than just they were childless, and that's sad. There's shame, there's disgrace, there's brokenness, there's probably pain. We find out that they've been praying for a child. Now, they were both very old. I wonder how long they've been praying. You know, they get married. They have all kinds of hopes and dreams. It doesn't actually say how long they were married. This isn't like, hey, we got married and we prayed for a child. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed. Nothing. God, do you even care? Are you even listening? Verse 8 is going to give us the story of God showing up and showing humanity its worth by Christmas morning, but actually honing that in on these two people's lives. So he, Luke is providing the context for us of why their story points beyond themselves. Their lives, Zechariah and Elizabeth, have a greater significance than just their own personal existence because they have been brought into a, a greater story that God is writing. They, they got out of their own shame and, and pain, and they got into something God was doing. And the more we look inside of ourselves and we try and figure things out ourselves, the worse off we're going to be. The last thing someone who is dealing with depression needs is to look inside themselves. That's partially why they are depressed. We've got to point them somewhere else. Your life has more significance than you even imagine. And so Luke is building this context for us because it's an important, verse 7 is an important verse to understand, not just what God's doing in Elizabeth. He'll do it again in Mary. He'll do it again with uh, Jesus' life. He keeps doing it over and over and over again. For me, that's why the words keep coming in the back of my head. The world and sin and error pining until he appeared, the soul felt its worth. He's doing it all over the place in Scripture. He's doing it all over the place in our lives. But this couple was dealing with all of this. I don't know how long. It, it was probably a long time they were trying to have a child. There's probably a lot of interactions. You know, we just sometimes remove these people out of their context. They had friends. They had family. They lived in the community. He had other priests that he worked with. She had other people that she did stuff with. Imagine feeling this all the time. The conversations behind your back, maybe right to your face. I don't know. That's how Luke starts this story. There's a heaviness to this story in verse 7. And that gives us the context for his story about this couple. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, that was his job, we found out, he was chosen by lot. So I don't know how they did it. They all drew straws and said, nope, nope, okay, you got it. That means God wants you to do the job. I'm sure it was more spiritual than that, but that's my view of it. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. One of the priests did this once a year, and because of the amount of priests they had to do it, it was very rare that you did it. It's possible you would only do it once in your lifetime, and this this. This is Zechariah's opportunity. He goes in to burn that incense as part of his job. And when the time came for the burning of incense, 
all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So he goes in the temple, everybody else is outside, praying, worshiping, having kind of like a worship service outside. And while Zechariah is in there, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And he says, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Now we're going to hear that over and over again in this Christmas story. Somebody gets startled, gripped with fear, and then we hear the angel say, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now imagine an angel, I don't know what you've been praying for for a long time, but imagine hearing that for the first time. Somebody comes to you, an angel of the Lord. I mean, this is obviously a big deal. It's not just Ted going up to you and saying, hey, your prayer's been heard. Well, how do you know? An angel of the Lord comes to you and says, your prayer has been heard. And Zachariah's probably like, which one? I've been praying a lot of them. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you're going to call him John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. There's a greater significance here of what God's doing in and through your life and Elizabeth's life. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was the superstar prophet. If you go back into the Old Testament and you want to see who was the guy that did the best and the most amazing, who was the guy that was the superstar of all the prophets, Elijah was that guy. The son you've been praying about or the child you've been praying about, that's who I'm going to give you. To turn their hearts, to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the promise that I have made, the Lord, the Messiah. So, of course, what does Zechariah do? Well, if you have read the Christmas story before, the, the guys in the story, the dudes, don't have the greatest reputation. He's a little slow on the take here. So, I know you guys are like, oh, I would be ready to, you know, all right, we're going to have it. How can I be sure of this, he says. I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Sounds like another couple that was told by some angels that they would have a child. And the descendants that God promised would come through this child. And they were a little skeptical as well. And so Zechariah, being, you know, a guy who's a little slow here on the take, says, well, how is that possible? We're really old. How are we going to have a child? The angel said to him, now, I can't read tone in Scripture, but I'm just wondering if Gabriel's tone changed here. He says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. So this is Gabriel. We heard about him in Daniel back in the Old Testament. So I'm picturing Gabriel ready to slap him across, you know, oh, I can't believe this guy. I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you the good news. God is doing something big here. And it wasn't because you're a super intelligent guy that God chose you, obviously. It was because you guys have sought your whole life 
to follow God. Even after prayer, after prayer, after prayer of having a child wasn't answered, you continued to follow God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you're the type of people that if God never answered your prayer, you would go to your grave believing that he was still good. I've been sent to you to tell you this good news. And now, because of your lack of trust, you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, which I think just creates an even bigger climactic point when the day actually happens. It's, it's even better. This story is even better because this happens to him, I think, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So Zechariah comes out of the temple, and whoa, we went too far there. Zechariah comes out of the temple, and he could not speak to them. They, they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So they knew something happened in the temple. When his time of service was over, he was completed, he went home. He, now he cannot speak now. So he goes home to his wife, unable to talk. And it says in verse 24, after this, after he went home, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. What God said would happen has taken place. I know you're really old. God's like, I don't care. I don't, I don't need that. I'm the one who is involved in human history here. And what's going to happen is an even bigger deal than you getting pregnant even though you're older. And this is Elizabeth's response. Now, compare this to Zachariah's response. The Lord has done this for me. In these days, she says, he has shown his favor and taken away my grace, my disgrace among the people. This amazing thing, Luke gives us a story. Zechariah goes in temple. An angel, the Lord appears to him. He doesn't believe it. He comes out. He can't speak. Everybody's like, how can you not talk? You were just talking a year off before you went in the temple. So something amazing is happening. And so he's probably excited about this. He goes home. Elizabeth is now pregnant. They're excited about this. This whole story of heaviness in verse 7 has been turned upside down. And now there's some excitement, some joy, some build to what's going to happen here. And it's going to get even more exciting because a relative of Elizabeth is going to be pregnant too. And her pregnancy is even better than Elizabeth's pregnancy. I think this is capturing the soul feeling its worth aspect of that song, where God is taking things of the Old Testament, a lot of that same language of Abraham and Sarah not being able to get pregnant is being used in here. A lot of those same responses, people just doubting God back then, still doubting God now. But God continues to come through over and over and over again. And Luke is telling us this so that we can know the things that we believe. Because Jesus says he's coming back. Can we trust in that promise? Well, God is using the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth to say yes. He is rooting it in history. This isn't a legend. It's not a fable that you've read in a storybook. This is human history. And he's saying, yes, you can depend on this. What's your response going to be? 
like Zachariah's or Elizabeth's? What's your response to Christmas going to be? One of doubt? One of skepticism? One of disbelief? Or one of joy? One of hope because of what he's doing. Same responses in the Old Testament, same responses in the New Testament. God intervenes in this faithful couple's life. And he did it in Sarah's life. He did it in Rachel's life. And they use the same language that Elizabeth used in verse 25. In these days, God has shown me favor. Imagine the emotion she felt. Her soul really felt its worth. Prayer after prayer, year after year after year. Wondering, God, do you hear these prayers? But faithfully continuing to follow the Lord. And then that day comes. She's pregnant. The Lord has shown me favor. All the disgrace that I felt from friends, family, my community, all the pain, all the brokenness, everything that was connected with not having a child, God has reversed. If we expand that out, you and I can both say, God has shown me his favor. The heaviness of our life, the weight of our sin, God has reversed that. On Christmas morning, he too showed you his favor. God has taken all that away. And where once there was disgrace, we now receive his grace. There is this new and wondrous morning. There's a reason why we rejoice. There's a reason why there's this thrill of hope. Because it's like a new day, a new start, a rebirth, in fact. Because God broke into human history. And the whole story now of disgrace, of shame, of sin, of heaviness that overshadowed things back in verse 7, that overshadowed this life. I mean, we could have sat at verse 7 and we could have just talked about the cultural significance of everything that's going on here. And we could have sat there for an hour so that we could really start to feel maybe what it felt like to be Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that whole story that is overshadowed with disgrace, brokenness, heaviness, is taken over by God's grace in those words. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. God has fulfilled his promise. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. And the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown me his favor by taking away disgrace among the people. That's why Christmas for me is an evangelistic holiday. You know how many people need that kind of heaviness removed from them? You know how many people are in this world in sin and error just pining for something else? How many people are just broken out there? How many people's Thanksgiving was dreadful because their family is not talking to them or whatever? But there's this day that comes around once a year in which we're reminded of how much you're actually worth to God. You know, God was willing to break into this human history. You know, he was willing to die for you. Well, I didn't do anything. 
Have you seen my life? Do you know my story? See, God's trying to write a bigger story, one with greater significance. He's inviting you into it. That's what he did with Zachariah and Elizabeth. They were nobody important. But their lives have greater significance because it's included in God's redemptive story. That's really what coming to Christ is. That's why getting outside of ourselves, that's why we've got to have somewhere to point to me in counseling and therapy that isn't just, if we can fix Ted, Ted can't be fixed. Ask Jess. We've been married now for close to 16 years. I can't be fixed. But God loves working with people just like me, just like you. And I'm confident we, we were here at a service a couple of Sundays ago, uh, Pete Hurd, uh, Marty Hurd's ex-husband, uh, if you know anything about his story, there was about 80 or so people here and a bunch of guys that were part of Pete's basketball team uh, that Pete somehow was involved in their life. You know, we're, we were multiple years beyond Pete's passing, and these guys came to share some stories about him, about his life had an impact on them. So your story isn't just about you. It isn't even just about Zachariah and Elizabeth. I wonder what they're thinking now. You know, I believe I'll be able to meet Zachariah and Elizabeth one day. Imagine your story being part of God's redemptive story. And I can start naming people for you. They're not going to be in a history book, but they changed my life. If we made a movie about them called It's a Wonderful Life, my life would look totally different without that person in it. And I bet you could say that same thing. And I think Christmas, to me, the evangelistic part of it is you get to try and be that in somebody else's life. There's something powerful about this holiday when our souls, collective humanity, feel their worth, but there is a soul that you're rubbing shoulders with that probably has no sense of worth either. And God works with, on that day, humanity was disfavor and disgrace was removed and favor and grace was given to us because of what Jesus did. And you take it from humanity, that's pretty big, all the way down to this couple in Judea, in this time frame, in this little town, and God did it in their life too. That's just how God works. He can do a lot of big things, but it's not like he's forgotten about you. It's not like you're too, in, well, God doesn't care. I'm too insignificant. Uh, apparently in this story, and we're going to be introduced to another young girl who is maybe even less significant than Elizabeth in worldly cultural context terms. I think what we need to, I hope what we can capture during this time of year is the immensity of what God did. And, and that's why I love that song so much. To know that God would do that for somebody as messed up and screwed up as me. And not just do that for me, but he'd do it for you and you and you and you. And actually all of humanity. There's a place for us at his table, as we've sung about.
So this year, as you're getting ready and you're thinking about Christmas and maybe you've felt that heaviness, maybe you needed to hear this, that God can change that heaviness to rejoicing and praising. And imagine Elizabeth, just put yourself in Elizabeth and Zachariah's shoes in that moment, how you would feel. That's what God can do. But maybe you know that experience. You've felt that. You're living that way. You are part of God's redemptive story. You see that significance, which gives purpose and meaning to life, and that's what so many people need. But there's somebody in your life that could really use it. Don't let this Christmas pass by without having that gospel conversation about what it means that Jesus came. In a world in which sin and error are pining for something more, he did appear, and when he did, our souls felt their worth. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us, so faithful to us. We sang all about that this morning, really. But God, we can see how you can take something as big as all of humanity and trading their disgrace with grace and trading their shame with being called heirs to a throne, sons and daughters of the Most High. God, you've done that through the coming of your Son, through God putting on flesh and breaking into human history. But God, you do that in individual people's lives as well. We just heard about that with Zachariah and Elizabeth, Lord. And God, I know you want to do it in our lives. And maybe there's some people's lives that aren't here, but we know them. We can think about them, and you want to do it in their life. So God, thank you for being that kind of God, and I pray, Lord, that we would use this Christmas holiday season as an evangelistic tool to remind the world that there is a day in which Jesus Christ appeared where we finally felt our worth, and in being included into your redemptive story, we find our significance, our worth, our value, our purpose and our meaning. God, you can do that, I believe, in people's lives. You can do that through your son, Jesus Christ, who loves to change and transform. And we experience a thrill of hope because a new day is ahead of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.